Hi, and welcome to the Hiring Success Podcast. My name is Mason, and I'll be your new host. I'm looking forward to bringing you fresh insights from the world of talent acquisition and recruiting each month. Our sixth and latest episode features an interview with Jason Ewell from Insight Partners, a global venture capital and private equity firm based in New York City that invests in growth stage technology, software, and internet businesses. Among other things, Jason oversees Insight Onsite's Talent Center of Excellence, working closely with portfolio companies on organizational design, talent, and the hiring of C-level employees. He's well-versed in the art of getting the C-suite actively involved in the hiring process, a task that sometimes is anything but easy. And now, without further ado, our interview with Jason Yule. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mason. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I've already given our listeners a bit of background information on you, but why don't we start off by having you tell us uh, a little bit more about yourself and what you do at Insight Partners. Sure. I'm an operating partner at Insight. I'm on the operations team here, which is called Onsite. And uh, we're a team of people who work closely with portfolio companies after we invest. Uh, We're broken down into functional areas. We have an organization that works with sales organizations. We have a team that works with marketing product, um, R&D, and I happen to run talent. I've been here four years. Um, This role is in addition to classic operating partner responsibilities like sitting on a few boards. Um, Before this, I worked at a software company uh, called TravelClick from 2010 to 2014. I started out as GM of two of their businesses, and by the time I left, I was running all four businesses. That company went from around 190 million to north of 300 million. In that, in that four-year run that I was there. And before that, uh, I spent most of my career at American Express, uh, 14 years. Although a little unknown fact is I started a record company with a friend out of uh, college uh, for a couple of years, which was a lot of fun. That's interesting. So I guess you've uh, certainly changed career directions then. Do you think that you've carried over any insights from your days in the music in, uh, industry? Uh Yes, I, I learned the importance of business models and understanding the environment, which is not, of course, as a 23-year-old, not something I was focused on or cared about. But during the two years of experience, it became pretty obvious to me what the business model was in that industry um, and that we had chosen a role that made no sense. Um, and while we were, had a great time and found some great artists, we weren't going to ever make any money. Um, And so it really is a a real interesting thing about what the culture of an industry is, what your skills, where you fit. And actually, my biggest takeaway is I needed to go to a more rational industry, less style-based, more rational, and uh, a more of a meritocracy. Um, And, you know, certainly uh, in entertainment, a personality uh, is is really powerful and important. Um, And a lot of uh, what drove success in that industry was based upon having a certain personality that fit for that industry, and I did not have that personality. Um, so I went to a more uh, sort of analytical and rational industries, which is how I ended up in financial services. Oh, that makes perfect sense. So now you're in the talent acquisition space. How did you come into that line of work? Sure, well, how I came into it is when I was working here, I noticed we really weren't doing anything formal in the space. And I felt that at an investing company like ours, Besides making the right investment, and a huge chunk of our organization is dedicated to that, finding the investments, evaluating them, 
picking the right ones, doing diligence. It's, a, it's the large majority of the people here do that. Um, and then doing M&A after we invest. Really, the next most important thing we can do is make sure we have the right teams in place. There's a lot of other stuff we do, and it all matters. But I felt that was the next important, and we weren't doing anything. And in my history and, and my, my business life, one of my key uh, attributes to success was really being good at building strong teams and hiring great people and, and developing people. I really valued people. I felt much of my success was attributed to the people around me, um, the, the mentors I had, the peers I worked with, and the people I hired. And I was trained at a place, an American Express, that took it seriously and was really good at it. So it was really a set of skills I had an advantage with. And I sort of looked around here and realized I can help. And I just started doing it. And then it became a formal job that they asked me to do, that the partners asked me to do. So I have the impression that it's not always the case that companies place uh, importance on talent acquisition in the way that you or uh, companies like American Express do. Why do you think that is? So my belief is that... Uh, Every founder greatly values talent acquisition, but most founders did not grow up in it. So um, it requires the person in talent acquisition to be a good educator and uh, to, to, in, and to invest the time to educate their founder on what they need to be successful. So I think when you work in a function that, that your boss has not grown up doing, um, in order to get sympathy or empathy from that boss as to what's needed to achieve success, it's harder. It's much easier for a founder who is a developer to, to, to identify with developers. Um, or, you know, a CEO, I grew up in, in you know, strategy and go-to-market channels, product marketing. So I don't really know what it's like to be a developer. Um, and it's, it's hard, it's, I, somebody has to educate me on what that's like. Um, or working with agencies, I always found it really interesting to work with creatives. And I needed a lot of coaching about how to work with creatives because they're just very different than the people that, that um, I, I grew up working with in, in my junior, when I was junior. So I think, uh, I think most CEOs at our high growth company really care about talent, really care about talent acquisition, but it takes some work if you're that person to help them understand what's needed to be successful. Um, and I just want to go back and, you know, address something else you mentioned, which is, you know, how did I end up doing this? Um, mm -hmm. I actually think it's super important, but not only that, I did it so much as an operator and worked really closely. I love my talent acquisition partners. I'm still work with many of them. Um, and, you know, some of my favorite people in my life uh, and my work life were my HR business partners. Some of the most fun I had was with those people. And you know, I found them to be a real weapon, to, uh, you know, to help us be successful. Uh, and so I, I got into this because I, feel I could make a difference bringing a perspective of not somebody who grew up necessarily doing it, but actually being the operator on the other side, and that that combination um, can bring a new perspective. And that's actually how, why I got into it. Okay. So what do you need to do then to get the C-suite involved in uh, the talent acquisition process? How, how would you start to speak their language and demonstrate the business value of rec recruiting? So I think that most of them want to invest in it. They're very rational. Most high growth companies desperately need to hire and hire effectively. I think what it's really about, and, and I've seen people in the shoes of a talent acquisition person get frustrated because they don't think they have the resources they need. Um, and so I think it's really about 
uh, and I also see maybe a little bit um, uh, an anxiety sometimes about um, transparency and accountability. Like if you really want to be successful, you're going to have to be both um, engage your founder and be vulnerable and be willing to be held accountable and measured because that's really the key to success. Cadence, pace, measurement. In many ways, it's just like sales. Um, you know, you've got to, you've got to build a funnel, you got to manage the funnel. And so you, the key is, I think, to be rational, to create a plan where just like a salesperson, you work backwards for how many hires you need, well, then how many interviews do you need? What's your conversion rate? How many in-person visits do you need? How many, um, how much pipeline do you need? How many initial contacts do you need? That's, if you approach it rationally and say, okay, this is what we're trying to achieve, then you can educate around those steps in the funnel as to what you need to be successful. What, how many recruiters you need, what kind of budget you need, what kind of tools you need. These, this is the way to, to do it, is to do it in a rational, commercially oriented way that I think a founder can understand. Let's say, for example, someone is just starting out as a recruiter and they realize that maybe that in order to be more effective in their role, they should take a structured data-driven approach. Um, how do you think they should go about doing that? I think, you know, everything from obviously working with applicant tracking systems, that's critical. That's ironic, you know, of course, not coincidental, we're having this conversation. Um, Pre-hiring assessments are really valuable and useful. Um, the, um, I think some sort of pipeline management, you know, um, cadence and process, I think it's as much about, I think tools facilitate, so let me re-answer that. Tools facilitate process. The key is to have a process, is to develop a winning process. Um, and there are, you and I have discussed this, there are probably four, three or four elements that I think are key to success in, in hiring. Um, and process is definitely one of them. You have to design a process. And if you don't, then you'll struggle to succeed. Then it's easy to find the tools to plug into the process. Some people think the tool is the answer. If you just go get a tool and you don't have a process, you will not be successful. Yeah, I, th I think that's definitely a very valid point. Um, you mentioned that there are three or four pillars of hiring success or paths to successful talent uh, acquisition, if you will. Could you touch on some of the others or elaborate on, on that a bit for us? Sure. Well, I, so I, I think I'll go through the four. The first is that the C-suite has to be engaged. That's true for both executive talent or in any hiring. If it's not a priority at the top, you won't be successful. So you have to get your C-suite engaged. Uh, the second is to have a process, to have a disciplined uh, approach, um, to have cadence. I say this, cadence and pace matter. Um, it, 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 if you don't have it, you will not be successful. The third is to have a sort of a disciplined and structured approach to assessing candidates. Um, and then the last, which really is about pipeline at the top, but it requires the most sophistication and it makes no sense to invest in it unless you have the first three, is what I'll call recruitment marketing or talent acquisition marketing. It's amazing how many places in the world their, their solution to, to, to trying to generate pipe is to hire people to make phone calls. Uh, and that is sort of like vacuum cleaner salesmen. When I was a kid, there were still vacuum cleaner salesmen, you know, running around door to door, knocking on your door, or Avon ladies, um, you know, selling cosmetics. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of like the equivalent. The fact is that that 
great organization. It, and it limits your universe. It doesn't give you any scale. Marketing has to be a key part of how uh, we acquire talent uh, because a, a job decision is one of the biggest decisions that people make in their life outside of relationship decisions like, you know, getting married or having a baby. A job decision is like the biggest decision people make in their lives. It's huge. It affects their whole life. And so people are super thoughtful about it and super deliberate. And yet the, the, there's almost no effort going into thinking about them as a purchaser of a, making a purchase decision. And we have to think about it that way, you know? And so who are you going after? What's your segment and target market you're going after? What is their mindset? What's their persona? What are the things that they care about? How do we make sure we get those messages out to them? What channels do they consume information in? This is all marketing stuff, you know? Right. What, a day in the life of that person, what's the media they consume? Where, how do you get in front of them? And then what is, the, what is the purchase decision? What's the process? We've all been through it. We're all familiar with it. Um, people agonize over these decisions. They're, they're, they're huge decisions. So I think marketing is really important. Right, right. And I think that there's nothing worse than accepting a new position and finding out two months down the road that it's you know, not the right fit for you. And at the end of the day, it's just a huge waste of time and money for both parties, isn't it? Yep, 100%. Bad for everyone. Look, I had a, we had a company that had a very intense culture and um, we had a person interview and the executive team, when we met with the one, this one individual, we made it really clear how intense it was to work at our company. We all loved it. You know, we loved it. It was thrilling, but it was intense and it wasn't for everyone. And the person opted out of the process late and our CEO came and said to us, well, what did you guys do? And we said, well, we told them what it's actually like to work here because it's better because we had been through experiences with people who didn't have the same mindset. And every place has a different mindset. We loved it. We were into it as a group. We loved it. We, we loved to laugh about it, tell stories about it. We still talk about it, right? Um, but it was intense and it was more intense than any place I'd ever worked. And we had seen people come in and, and just not realize after they got there that we weren't kidding. So we got better at articulating what it was really like. Uh, and it saved all of us trouble. We didn't hire people who would then opt out. And listen, I wasn't perfect. I still remember one person who I'm really fond of. And I think, you know, it sort of affected our relationship forever. But they came and it was just not for them. And they left. And it was, and I think that probably they and we and they both knew that, could have known that before they joined, you know, which is unfortunate because it also affected a, a work relationship, you know, in, in forever um, because they really didn't like it. So. Yeah, that, that kind of runs counterintuitive to what most people think of when they think of interview scenarios, don't you think? I mean, more often than not, they just feel like um, a series of polite formalities, but maybe that's really not so useful in the end. I mean, I think it's just, as the interviewee, you have to be more careful, but there are ways to ask open-ended questions. But I think it's on our side, as the people doing the hiring, like we want to be honest about who we are. Yeah. You just want to be, you want people to know. Now, that doesn't mean you put things in a negative light. You know, um, when I think about our intense environment, I could have articulated or represented that intense environment in a negative way or a positive way, you know, or, or sort of a neutral slash positive way. And we chose to represent it in a neutral slash positive way. Or we would say, it's like this here. This is why we love it. Here are some of the trade-offs, right? But I just believe you're better off if you have a match for the environment. Okay, I'm going to go off course here for just a second. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on uh, something slightly off topic. So we've already discussed how difficult it can be to acquire talent. 
Um, there are a few studies that we often cite at Smart Recruiters from McKinsey and PwC. The study from McKinsey states that approximately 82% of companies don't believe they recruit the talent they need to succeed. And the study from PwC says that 77% of CEOs see a lack of key skills as being the biggest threat to their success. So finding the talent is hard enough, but what do you do once you find it? How do you retain it so that you don't have to suffer through that process of acquiring it over and over again? I love that question. And, uh, you know, as we know, in all media, there's always a prep beforehand. You and I did not discuss this, but I think you are spot on. Um, there is no doubt that how you acquire affects retention. In fact, one of our portfolios recently came to me and talked to me about retention, and I said, I actually think part of the pro your problem is probably what's happening in the hiring process of not targeting correctly. And this goes back to the conversation we just, we're just having. Yeah. And the, one of the partners that we work with, this is one of the principles this guy that I work with espouses. You know, he believes if you're not clear on like leveling and um, job leveling and career pathing and, and the comp consistency and comp and all these things that happen at the talent acquisition stage, you're gonna have problems later. You know, we all know you can't pay people to stay but we know if you pay them poorly, it increases the likelihood they leave. People will stay because they love your culture, they love your mission, they love their job, they love the people they work with. They feel good about what they're doing. They leave because they're not, their boss is terrible, they think the organization lacks integrity, they don't believe in the direction of the company, you know, that, that they're not paid well enough, their commute stinks, you know. Um, so you just need to be clear. You don't wanna start off with having a a person in the wrong place that's not a fit for them or in a place where or, or you know where you've got inconsistency in your you know talent acquisition process that creates problems for you down the road absolutely yeah um i think having a transparent recruitment process in place can be very helpful in um, avoiding complications like that uh, going back to the topic of recruitment marketing quickly can you think of any examples of companies executing that um, process in a clever fashion, or are there any tactics to recruitment marketing that you think work better than others? Sure, so I'm gonna talk about something I'm not that expert on, um, and, and some of this is hearsay. You know, the one of the companies that has a reputation, I haven't dug in to exactly what they've done, but one of the companies that has a reputation for doing this well is Starbucks. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about it, Starbucks is a fast food chain. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I, I think in my generation, fast food was sort of like uh, what the, you know, what maybe mobile technology is to the current generation. Like it was, it was exploding. It was the hot new thing. Uh, going to McDonald's was like the biggest treat in the world. You might have gone twice a year and it was like amazing. You'd, we'd go there for birthday parties. That's how cool it was to go to McDonald's. Uh, and so when I think about the fast food experience in my lifetime and how it's evolved and what it's like getting fast food service. And you think you don't even think of Starbucks as being fast food because the people that work there are so good. They're so good at their job. They're the best. They are like the A quality people in fast food. They're amazing. And a lot of it has to do with many things about Starbucks, not just how they acquire talent. But my understanding is that Starbucks met several years ago, I don't know exactly how long ago, um, started to think about how they acquired talent take more of a marketing centric approach and it's been quite successful this is all hearsay you know i can't cite anything it's just it's more um industry knowledge um 
within our own portfolio companies, um, one of the companies that my team mentions to me consistently is a company called Encino, N-C-I-N-O. They're a banking software. And if you go to their website, you know, they have multiple tabs in the talent section about talking about, you know, the things that people who, who might be looking for jobs care about, you know, rather than just the jobs that when you get into it, there's content. And I haven't spent a lot of time on it myself, but the, 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 my team, you know, sings their praises. Um, what I will say in terms of tactics, you know, the, the, there is, um, we didn't talk about this yet, but I mentioned the importance of data and analytics. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a program here um, where we do pre-hire assessments um, uh, focused, we're expanding it to all roles, but it started with sales. And um, in that pre-hire assessment, there's also a survey at the end that one and two uh, candidates take where we ask them, you know, what attracted you to this job? Why would you be interested in it? What's important to you? What's not important? And we're able to look at people who end up performing well or scoring well on the assessments and see what messages attracted them and what messages didn't. And then we take those messages and we incorporate them into job advertising, into job descriptions, into emails, into the talk track of the recruiters. And we've seen, we had one company that, that doubled their performance on the test, the pre-hire assessments of the candidates they had just by tweaking some of the language in their job ads because the, the language was, you know, they, they had sort of the wrong, the exact wrong language in that attracted less qualified candidates and they had did not include language that attracted the most qualified candidates. So there is, it starts there, um, but there are some things that, you know, people care about in a job that you can't put in a job ad. They won't believe you. you know, saying like the leadership's great here in a job ad, people are going to be like, what? That's, they're just not going to respond to that. But if there's a video on your website of an employee, voice of the employee, where that em you're asking that employee, why do you, you know, why do you work here? What do you like about this place? And you film it up with those videos, you're going to have videos of, um, you're going to have videos of, uh, Employees saying, I love my boss or I love the people I work with. And a lot of those things may pop for your candidate pool as to being something they care about in a job. So I think there's a whole content marketing and video marketing, you know, sort of short form videos and content marketing, voice of the employee. I think there's messaging. I think there's channels, right? You have to think about what channels, where you go and how. And you have to treat different channels differently. Um, so all of those things are factors in, in talent acquisition marketing. You know who's great at this? Who's that? Colleges. Yeah. My daughter is a senior in high school. She came to me and she's like, Dad, it's, ama the, uh, it's amazing how good school acts, I'm not going to name the school, is at marketing to me. She's like, the social media messages, the links, the things I get, like there, are, she's getting, even my youngest daughter goes to camp. Now camp really isn't as important, but like I got onto the camp Instagram feed just so I could see what my daughter was seeing. And like, it's like unbelievable. Like they're marketing every single day, this camp to their, to their, and they built this community of campers. Um, but you know, for the, for the university and the college, everybody's trying to get the best students and as many of them as they can, even though the acceptance, rate, acceptance rates are low, you know, some colleges are struggling with enrollment as population, you know, demographics, um, um, our population is declining of college age students. And even though it's more competitive than ever, it, part of it is because the Common App allows people to apply to like 20 or 30 schools at once. So there's a huge competition to get the right applicants so that they can have their pipeline be big enough because their conversion rates keep going down. 
And so their marketing is unbelievable. And it's no different than what we're trying to do. Like if you're looking for a model, it's amazing because it's they have videos, they have content, they have um, social media, they have their website, they have brochures, you know, it's incredible. They're mailers with the, the amount of university and college direct mail that we get at our house in the last, got in our house in the last year was unbelievable. So they're, it's very similar. Yeah, I suppose we could all take a chapter out of their playbook. Um, I think these things have come a long way, certainly since I was preparing for college though. I think the most that I got from any university that I was considering applying to was a, a free t-shirt in the mail. <laughs> I don't think I ever got mail from anybody. I would have been so flattered. <laughs> okay, Jason, um, we're slowly nearing the end of our time and forgive me if I've glossed over anything, but I'd be happy to circle back and touch on some topics before we wrap up. Yeah, I think we should go back through the four points and sort of just, you know, things we didn't touch on. So first, let's talk about getting the, the C-suite engaged. Okay. We've done a bunch of work, and we've intuitively noticed, noticed this, and now we have the data to notice this. But it, it is critically important, and I'm sure that every talent acquisition person that listens to this podcast, however many that is, is going to be nodding their heads when I say this. But it's critically important that the hiring leader is fully engaged in the search. What does that mean? That means that they show up at every single, that you have to have a weekly call, that's part of the process. They show up at every weekly call, they review the resumes, they're thoughtful and articulate about what they like and don't like in the resumes. They're consistent in that, that you document this and play it back to them, that when they're inconsistent, you say, I don't understand, you said this last time, you're saying this this time. Not get angry because people need time to form the thoughts, but say, can you articulate that, explain it more, then redocument and say, so what we're looking for is X, right? And you, you're actually, it's your job to help them become more articulate about what they need. That's, you're like a, you're like shepherding them through the process and you need that, you're like a, an advisor, you're like a, an art docent, you know, your, your job is to sort of help them, um, be more clear about what they want. And so that requires them to be engaged. Engagement also means that people don't wait a week to get a, 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 an appointment. They need to understand that. It doesn't matter what else is going on. I used to say to my team, hiring is priority zero, which they all love to laugh at me for. Because we we'd make our priorities one to five, and then I'd say, oh yeah, and then there's hiring, that's priority zero. And they all would always laugh. Hiring is always priority zero, but it is. It is more important than everything else the, the people that struggle the most that I see in high growth companies are founders and CEOs who everything else comes with. They have all these business things to try to deal with. And the problem is it, it does require, it is, it, it does require giving up blood. If you've ever seen uh, the last Harry Potter or the second to last one, when, when they go in to get the, uh, one of the Horcruxes out in the, you know, it looks like the Irish sea and, and Voldemort has, uh, uh, Dumbledore has to cut his hand and put his blood on the wall to get it to open. He has to weaken himself. Well, yeah. you have to sort of, cut your own hand and weaken yourself and take time out of your day running the business to actually um, effectively do recruiting. And that means you have to be available for interviews. I mean, I did interviews in my career. I still do. 7.30 in the morning, 9 o'clock at night. Unfortunately, that's when I could fit it in. And at the executive level, people, most of the people you're trying to talk to would rather do that also because they're busy during the day. Obviously, that doesn't happen at the frontline level. But you have to make the time. You can't make people wait too long. Um, and so it's really about keeping them engaged. And then keeping the C-suite engaged, the mid-level hiring leaders will not make hiring a priority if they don't think it's being scrutinized by the C-suite. 
So you need to get your head of sales to basically in every one of their weekly meetings have hiring on the agenda and have an update. And that gives you the platform to say, hey, you know, we couldn't get this interview scheduled this week. Once everyone realizes it's going to be exposed each week, that there's going to be a project management process, and you're going to say, here's the things we said we we're going to do last week, here's the ones we did and didn't. Instead of ignoring you, the sales VP or the marketing VP will realize, oh my gosh, if I don't do this, this is going to, senior management's going to see this. So I think, you know, that's around the C-suite. And then in process, like I can't emphasize more the importance of the weekly process, um, having the, you know, the pipeline funnel metrics, um, uh, reporting those metrics to the C-suite, reporting those metrics, you know, to the middle management. Um, that all of that is critically important. Um, ha not allowing more than 72 hours from when you talk to a candidate to communicating the next steps. Ideally, it's 48. Trying to make each step five or six days. You know, don't be too eager, but don't be slow. Like sort of consistent forward movement yeah. is what I would you know recommend. Um, and then you know we didn't talk about structured hiring, but I think it's critically important to have detailed scorecards mm -hmm. that. Uh, that touch on skills, traits, and experiences, and to force people to interview against those scorecards, to tell them you want them to take raw notes during the interview, you want those raw notes to go into a form, and you want them to score people and give you a reason why they're scored. Um, I do on a, a scale of one to five, five being best, one being worst. Um, you you want to do all of that. So I think all of those things are important. So I didn't want to leave the call with sort of without hitting on those points. I think those are, are again key to success. And, and forgive me if, if there are any of those points that you would like to expound upon. By all means, um, I don't want you to feel rushed. We still have a, a little bit more time here. No, I think that that's, that's good enough. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to you know, spend more time if you want to dig into any of these topics. If, if, the, if the response is high and people are truly interested in hearing more, we could always do another one. Do you have anything further to say about the, the hiring scorecard? Because um, that's something that's pretty integral to our methodology at Smart Recruiters, and I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts about that. I mean, I think the scorecard is the most important thing in the product. Besides having the C-suite engaged, I'd say scorecards are the next most important factor in driving hiring success. And yeah. again, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, work rules, um, you know, Laszlo Box book is, is, is super interesting on, on assessments and, and how you go about assessments and the number of interviews and all that. But to me, the scorecard, the key with the scorecard is that you think about skills, traits, and experiences, and they're important in that order. Skills first, traits mm -hmm. second, experiences last. And so skills are things like a nose, uh, ha, ha, uh, knows how to develop and, and deploy a, you know, a, a sales process and sales methodology, or um, you know, uh, understands how to do enterprise product marketing. And then the details within that are, you know, understands how to target and segment uh, personas, um, you know, uh, all of that, you know, all the details that we're going to product marketing. It's very detailed scorecard elements. The, the scorecard elements are a paragraph long each. They okay. are not three words. Um, and so it's, it's very precise and specific about what you're testing for. Um, and it takes work. When I first started writing them, I had a lot of writer's block. It was very hard. Um, but you want the detail, and you get that detail usually by talking to the person who's hiring and asking them, what are you looking for? And when somebody just says, oh, I want someone who's been, done this before, then you're like, no, but uh, then you have to dig in. 
but you, the scorecard is super important and needs to be precise. It needs to be needs to have those three categories, and it should be eight to ten items. For for senior roles, sometimes it gets as many as eleven. Yeah. It's usually let rarely less than six or seven, and and it should so it's like six to eleven items on the scorecard. Nothing's worse than the laundry list job description of, of somebody who has to do everything. That's really not, you're really not forcing yourself to prioritize what you're looking for. Right. So on, on the topic of experience, I watched a video on Insight Partners website in which you talked about the, the, the value of placing less importance on experience. Uh, you cited a fact that the, I think the majority of Super Bowl winning coaches didn't have experience as head coaches beforehand. Is that, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Almost all the coaches have more, won more than one Super Bowl. Uh, they uh, are on their first job. They're, they 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 weren't they didn't have prior head coaching experience before they won their first Super Bowl. In fact, they're on their first job. It happens to be one of the exceptions is Belichick. Um, another is Don Shula. They both won multiple Super Bowls. But like every other coach was on their first head coaching job, right? Joe Gibbs, um, first head coach in the NFL, head coaching job in the NFL. Bill Parcells, first head coaching job in the NFL. Um, there's more and more. Jimmy Johnson, first head coaching job in the NFL. Um, and uh, and so, but that's just an easy, uh, sort of an easy analogy for a webinar. But the, my experience <laughs> is that there's a lot of people who have CEO experience, but they have it, you know, they have B outcomes or C outcomes, or they're at a B firm or a C firm, you know, or, 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 or they rode a wave. And, you know, you, you, you have to really evaluate what a person's skills are. A lot of the best CEOs we've hired were never CEOs before, you know, so it just depends. You got to you got to start with fresh eyes when you're and the person has to be a match, a profile match. I've met great CEOs that just aren't a match for the job we're looking for. And I'm like, oh, I, God, can we find this person a job? Where's their where are they a match? But hiring them for a job they're not a match for is a mistake. Yeah. Skills yeah. wise. Yeah. You don't want to hire a consumer guy for a big enterprise B2B job. You don't want to hire a big enterprise B2B guy for a small job, you know, small business job, unless they've shown they have those skills, right? Um, and they've shown that they understand how to do the work, which sometimes they are very versatile people, but you just have to really assess. And it, and it can't just be interviews. You know, the assessment process involves reference checking, interviews. Um, um, I like the use of online assessments, executive assessments. It's, it's, it's triangulation for sure. Uh, you know, if, if, I only get confidence on a hire if I've done all of those things. Then I begin. You know, if, if I go just on my interview instincts, I never give myself more than like 70% confidence, 65, 70% confidence. What gets me to 85 is if I talk to five or six references in addition to the interview, or I have a, or I have a pre-hire assessment. You know, it, it, you need to do all of those things in the assessment process. Yeah, and as you said, having a great ATS at your disposal makes that process a bit more streamlined. Uh, it's sort of the happy marriage of process and technology. Yeah. Well, Jason, uh, thank you so much. You've provided us with a lot of useful insight into uh, talent acquisition today, uh, especially the importance of having a measurable process in place, I think. And I think that our listeners are really going to derive a lot of value from this interview. Uh, and hopefully we talk again soon. Great. Thanks. Come and join us February 11th through the 12th in San Francisco for our annual Hiring Success Conference, an event that attracts 1,200 of the best and brightest HR and recruiting leaders from across the globe. Head to www.smartrecruiters.com forward slash hiring success 
forward slash Americas for more information about the event. Hiring Success listeners receive a 30% discount on tickets with the following code, HSPODCAST30. Once again, that's HSPODCAST30, all caps. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss a new episode. Take care, and until next time.